Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the June 1st, 2020 ASF Weekly Science Podcast. You all may or may not be hearing about a study on treatment with cord blood for people with ASD in the mainstream media, but in case you're not, I want to explain it to you. Now, normally I don't go around talking about things that don't work. That probably needs to change, but scientific publications are biased in reporting things that do work. Nobody publishes things that don't work because there could be a million reasons why they don't. This means volumes of things that don't work never get to a wider audience. It's a big problem, especially in autism spectrum disorder. It's very hard for scientists to say, this does not work under any situation and should be avoided. Of course, they do say these things, but there's always some hesitancy to deprive families of a potentially helpful treatment. Plus, scientists always say things with a million caveats like, it didn't work in this group, that, don't, that doesn't mean it won't work in another group, etc. Or, if we had done the study a different way, maybe we would have seen a different result. So it's confusing to families, and they go for whatever hope they see. In any event, there has been a lot of controversy over stem cell treatment for ASD, especially the use of stem cells found in umbilical cord blood to treat symptoms of ASD. People are flying all over the world doing things, in some cases, completely unsupervised, even though this is a medical procedure. Umbilical cord blood contains stem cells that can be used in the same person, and that's cord bloods that are saved at birth, and then that same person uses them later. This is called autologous. There's another type of transplant. Actually, this is more common. It's called allogenic, and that comes from a different person, maybe sometimes a sibling. It has to have a certain number of immune marker matches to it. One person can't just donate cells to somebody else. There needs to be a good match. The cord blood is saved, but it's used to treat someone else. You may hear about this through Be The Match, where leukemia patients are searching for stem cell donors, and that doesn't mean just stem cells from cord blood, it could be from bone marrow. And in this Be The Match, leukemia patients are searching for someone who is the match, who has those six-point matches in their stem cells. But in the case of cord blood, as long as there's a good enough match and different markers and the body doesn't reject new cells, you can use cells from someone else. People have wondered if cord blood treatments for ASD should only be from those with autologous cells, which require no immunosuppression, but may have some sort of genetic or abnormality in the first place that may have contributed to ASD or whether it's better to use allogenic cells, which may not have the same genetic mutation, but may require immunosuppressive treatment. There's a lot of anecdotal reports of people flying to places like Costa Rica or China to get stem cell transplants from umbilical cord blood for their children with ASD. The problem is there's never been any research that shows that it works. A study out of Duke University showed in a previous study about a year and a half ago that it was relatively safe. That is, giving one infusion of umbilical cord blood didn't result in any adverse events. Remember, though, that study was done in a hospital with top quality physicians. It may not reflect what's going on in real life. The earlier study showed promise, but there was really not enough details at that time to show efficacy. But this week, there was an update. In this phase of the study, it was placebo-controlled. That means that some kids got placebo or saline to compare to those who got cord blood. 
since you can't really fake an infusion like you can with a sugar pill or with something else, and because nobody would enroll if they thought they were going to endure an infusion of nothing, they did something called a crossover design. That means that some of the kids got cord blood first, then they got saline. The others got saline first, and then later they got a cord blood infusion. So everyone in this study got a chance to have access to the cord blood treatment. However, the study only measured the responses to the first infusion. Some kids got cord blood and some got saline. I was absolutely stunned by the number of people in this study. Over 100 people were enrolled in the cord blood group and about 60 in the controller saline group. More people were in this cord blood group because they had kids getting either an allergenic or an autologous infusion. That is either their own stem cells from their own cord blood or stem cells from cord blood from someone else. By the way, this made no difference in the final analysis, but it was good to know looking at the difference between allergenic and autologous. At six months after infusion, they tested a number of things. Social interaction using something called the Vineland scale, eye tracking, and also brain activity. The latter are two under serious consideration for biological markers or biomarkers of ASD and have actually been shown to be altered in people with ASD. These biomarkers actually showed a six-month difference post-infusion. Unfortunately, there were no behavioral improvements six months after that infusion. No significant differences, that is. There was a placebo effect. That means that even those who received nothing felt something. The violence scale is a caregiver interview, which may have swayed the results. But by the way, this is not unusual in autism research. In fact, almost all autism treatment studies that use self-report or caregiver-reported outcomes show some sort of placebo effect. And that's why it's important to do a placebo control, which this study did. They didn't see any behavioral differences in any of the behavioral outcomes they tested. There were some interesting nuances. For kids without intellectual disability, the ratings on the Clinical Global Impression Scale, which is a rating scale by clinicians, were better in those only treated with the allergenic cord blood. Not autologous, but allergenic. Why? Well, as far as the differences in intellectual disability, it could be because of the nature of the autism itself. Those without intellectual disability may be a little bit more responsive to this treatment. But why allergenic and not autologous cord blood cells? Why would there be a difference? Uh, to be honest with you, I have no clue and I'm not even going to lie to you. But again, there were some, those were hints at interesting findings. They did not reach statistical significance. So cord blood so far does not work on behavior, but it does have some interesting leads in terms of biological effects in the brain. Of interest, it seems to work a little bit better in people with IQ greater than 70 compared to those who would be considered intellectually disabled. There was a hint there, but it wasn't statistically significant. It didn't work better than placebo in either group, but it was a bit more effective in treating some of the social communication differences in one group compared to the other. Again, no significant differences, but some hints about a little bit of improvement in one group. Stay tuned. This project will come out with more reports. But if you are convinced that you need stem cell therapy, it's probably because you've tried everything else and you're absolutely desperate. First, if this is something you're considering, 
please talk to your physician. There may be things you haven't tried yet, and there may be more options for you. I can't talk you out of getting a stem cell treatment with cord blood, but I can tell you don't go to Costa Rica. Call someplace like Duke University who can medically monitor you in a hospital setting. Because I hyped up the publication bias and things that work versus things that don't work, I think things like systematic reviews and meta-analyses are great. They summarize the body of evidence of things that have been published, yes, but sometimes authors can report what doesn't work in with what does work. And then a meta-analysis or review will summarize what they find in that literature. This was recently done in a meta-analysis for treatment of restrictive and repetitive behaviors in ASD. These include things like stereotypes, movements, or speech, and insistence on sameness, extremely narrow interests, or atypical sensory responses. Although repetitive behaviors may sometimes be experienced as enjoyable or soothing, what people tell me when they hand flap is, is actually not a bad thing, repetitive behaviors can also be a source of significant distress and impairment for individuals with ASD and their families because they can interfere with everyday functioning and the ability to learn important adaptive and social communication behaviors. I do, again, hear a lot about how some people with autism love to stim and they should be left alone. Repetitive behaviors are not all about hand flapping or walking in circles. Sometimes they involve aggression to others or aggression to themselves. I want to mention that last year an editorial was written that criticized one measure of repetitive and restrictive behaviors because it did not differentiate between pleasurable and harmless behaviors and those that caused injury and distress. This meta-analysis was conducted by researchers at Yale University, and it reinforced what I reported last year. SSRIs like fluoxetine or Prozac or Paxil, they don't work so well in treating repetitive and restrictive behaviors. However, things that are FDA-approved, like risperidone and aripiprazole, they do work, not perfectly, and yeah, there are lots of side effects like weight gain to consider, but of those that they looked at, these two that, that were the only ones that showed significant improvements. Now, whether those statistically significant numbers convert to clinically significant alleviations of harmful and, and detrimental behavior is another story in another podcast. In order to really examine the effects of antidepressants, they looked at whether or not they were more effective in males, whether it was based on how long they were taking the drug, or whether or not certain groups who had higher or lower levels of certain repetitive behaviors at the beginning of the study was important. Was it even the way it was measured? Did some measurements say it was antidepressants were effective and some didn't? Well, no, no effects. Although if you had to pick something, there seemed to be a little bit more effectiveness in adults compared to kids. Not that one was effective, but again, like the cord blood study, it was in comparison to the other. What other drugs did they look at? Put on your seatbelts because this is what showed up in studies that did nothing for repetitive behaviors. These are things like oxytocin, naltrexone, which you may have heard about. It's commonly used to revive people from opiate overdoses. The stimulant amoxetine, N-acetylcysteine, vitamin D, and bumetanide. Now, these were the ones where there was more than one study looking into the effects on repetitive behaviors. There were others where there was just one small study, which I won't really get into. 
There are just not enough medications out there to treat people with autism on some of the most challenging behaviors, and that's a real problem. Yes, antipsychotics helped, but just a little. And there's work being done to deliver how to lower a dose of antipsychotics by combining drug treatment with behavioral interventions, which seems to hold the most promise to compromise between the side effects of weight gain and managing impulsive and aggressive behaviors. I said this last year, but it's worth saying again. Just because SSRIs do not help in restrictive and repetitive behaviors does not mean people with autism should not take them. This is not a call to stop or avoid antidepressant treatment. In fact, some antidepressants are helpful for anxiety in neurotypical people. I have to tell you, I haven't found very much evidence on studying antidepressants like SSRIs on things like anxiety or depression in people with ASD, but this is definitely needed. I don't want this podcast to end on a note of hopelessness. There's a reason to be excited. All of those neurobiological studies that some people think are not helpful to the lives of people on the spectrum, they're the ones that are identifying new treatment targets and understanding the way that different compounds may affect the autism brain. There are new things on the horizon from new companies, from biotechnology, from markers everywhere from brain tissue to blood. This is an exciting time for autism research. And just because SSRIs and oxytocin and naltrexone and vitamin D and atomoxetine do not work for repetitive behaviors, there might be things that will in the future. Thank you so much for listening this week, and I hope you have a peaceful and wonderful rest of your week.